goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Daniel Sieblad, der er politolog, professor ved Harvard University og forfatter. Sammen med kollegaen Steven Levitsky udgav han kort efter valget af Donald Trump-bogen How Democracies Die, der blev læst som den store analyse af de krisesymptomer, der var i de vestlige demokratier efter valget af Trump, efter Brexit og efter adskillige andre valg, som vi har beskæftiget os en hel del med her i langsomme samtaler. Den blev set som den autoritative analyse af demokratiernes svaghedstegn og sårbarheder, og som en del af det store liberale forsvarsprojekt konfronteret med de fremadstormende autokrater. Nu har Daniel Sieblad og Steven Levitsky skrevet en dybere, længere og mere grundig bog, som hedder The Tyranny of the Minority. Der er to antagelser omkring amerikansk politik i de her år for dem, der ikke bryder sig om Donald Trump. Den ene er, at den amerikanske forfatning er håbløs. Den anden er, at man ikke kan lave den om. Grunden til, at den er håbløs, er, at den gør det muligt at blive præsident i USA, samtidig med, at du får færre stemmer end din modstander. Det har vi jo set gang på gang på gang. Hvordan præsidentkandidater, der har vundet den såkaldte popular vote, alligevel ikke er blevet præsidenter. Og ved det seneste valg i 2020 så vi, at Joe Biden han fik 7 millioner stemmer mere end Donald Trump, og alligevel var det under 100.000 stemmer i enkelte svingstater, der afgjorde det. Vi har set, hvordan stater med meget lille indbyggertal har lige så stor indflydelse som stater med meget store indbyggertal i senatet, fordi man vælger to senatorer fra hver eneste stat. Vi har også set, hvordan det er utrolig nemt i amerikansk politik at blokere andres lovgivning, fordi der er så mange kontrolmekanismer bygget ind i amerikansk politik, og så få muligheder for faktisk at få lovgivning igennem, medmindre man har flertal over det hele, hele vejen fra det hvide hus til senatet, til repræsentanternes hus, og jo i mange tilfælde også ved domstolene. Så der er alle mulige obstruktioner i det amerikanske demokrati, for at det kan komme til at fungere demokratisk. Men Levitsky og Sieblad gør også i Tyranny of the Minority opmærksom på alle de gange, hvor det faktisk er lykkedes at ændre den amerikanske forfatning. Alle de processer, der har været, som har skabt meget store forandringer. Derfor fremlægger de i deres nye bog et katalog af forslag til, hvordan man skulle kunne gøre den amerikanske forfatning demokratisk, og det gør de ud fra nogle historiske eksempler på, hvordan det er lykkedes tidligere. Sibler og jeg diskuterer her tilstanden i det amerikanske demokrati i dag. Vi diskuterer truslen fra Trump. Og vi diskuterer, om det egentlig giver mening, som vi plejer at gøre i journalistikken, at sige, at hver eneste valg er ligesom et valg for eller imod demokrati i USA, hvor vi pumper det op til demokratiske skæbne valg, hver eneste gang amerikanske vælgere skal give sig til kende. Det kan jo ikke blive ved med at være rigtigt. Her følger min samtale med Daniel Sieblad. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. First, I want to ask you a almost personal question because many of us here in Scandinavia are quite surprised about the development in American politics since the election of Donald Trump. And I think actually more surprised of what has happened over the last couple of years than the election in itself, but the durability of, of Donald Trump and the way that it's not just his person, but you see his grab on the party and the electorate. For us, that's shocking and seems like as a dangerous new moment in American politics. But for someone 
like you, who's been following American politics and studied democracies for years, how surprised are you about the state of American democracy today? Well, I guess I have two views on this. One is what social science teaches me, uh, which is that over the if you look at data from around the world over the past hundred years, there are two uh, very almost fact-like regularities. Number one, that uh, if a democracy is very rich, uh, it tends not to get into trouble. Rich democracies don't die. The U.S. is a very rich country. I mean, no democracy with a GDP per capita of over seventeen thousand dollars a year has ever died, and so. You know, that that's one interesting fact. The second fact that political scientists and social scientists more generally have discovered is that old democracies don't die. Uh, no democracy over the age of 50 has ever collapsed. In the United States, even if we code America as becoming fully democratic in 1965, uh, is over 50 years old. So, so like the democracies of Western Europe, the United States should be secure. Um, on the other hand, it's certainly true, as you say, that there are these signs, warning signs of trouble. American democracy certainly hasn't collapsed, but it's facing greater challenges than we ought to, than it ought to, given those two basic facts that I just mentioned. So, you know, I, I am surprised, but I also see the sources of this, and I think it's very much rooted in a kind of long developing process. Um, you know, primarily, I mean, there are a couple of factors we can talk about what those factors are, but it's you know, you see some signs of things that uh, have gotten democracies into trouble in other places and other times. We see evidence of that, and so in some sense, it ought not surprise us. We've come accustomed to every American election is being called a battle of democracy, or the the phrase that democracy is 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 on the ballot. And I think we're and that is an, a media narrative that's that's quite exciting for, for us, and it it kind of dram, dramatizes the the political events of the present. But there's a quote in in your new book which I really learned a lot from by W. E. D. E. B. Du Bois, who said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, "Democracy died safe." in the hearts of black folk, meaning, of course, that you can have institutional backlash, but as long as people expect to live in a democracy and, and that they have democratic expectations and demands for society, it's very, very difficult actually to get rid of democracies. Do you think that we're overestimating the dangers to democracy? And I know that you're asking this question as the writer of a book called How Democracies Die. Yeah, well, no, I, I mean, there's something really to what you're saying, which is that, you know, uh, robust, old, rich democracy is hard to kill. I think American democracy is hard to kill. There's there's a lot of sources of resilience. Uh, our institutions are remarkably robust. Uh, our federal system decentralizes power. So it's hard for any single leader, if he were to come into power, to, to dominate the state. Uh, so there's all sorts of institutional sources of pushback. America has a very robust civil society. Um, and it's very pluralistic society. You know, there's sources of wealth, you know, in New York and Massachusetts and California, uh, the, the robust civil society that emerges out of that, um, that, that are opposed perhaps to, let's say, if Trump were to become president again. Uh, so between civil society, between our kind of federal institutions and other parts of our judicial institutions. Uh, and then finally, I would say, you know, the Democratic Party itself um, is a part of the party that's opposed to Trump. Is a well-financed party. It's not. Uh, it's not a party that's going to roll over if Trump, let's say, gets elected. So I think there are sources of resilience. That said, um, you know, I think the media narrative that American democracy is on the ballot is, is is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that much of an exaggeration. Um, I mean, I think there really is a sense that if um, you know, America has, by all international indices, uh, experienced democratic backsliding since 2016. 
uh, for for the first part of the 21st century, America on the there, there's an organization called Freedom House, uh, which gives countries scores from zero to 100 of how strong their democracy is. The United States, in the 21st century, had a score of 93, which basically put it on par with Germany, Great Britain, and Canada. Uh, today, its democracy score is 84, which puts it on par with Mongolia, two points below Argentina. So, you know, something serious has happened over the last six years, and I don't think we should underestimate. The threat that Donald Trump represents, but I, you know, and so if Donald Trump gets elected, I think it's very bad news for American democracy. But on the other hand, you know, it's you know, Americans will have to wake up the next day and figure out how to protect and save their democracy. One event that you also describe in your book is uh, is what happened on January 6, twenty twenty one, and that has for us here at this newspaper in Denmark been a puzzling event because it's often referred to in American press and American politics as a coup attempt. And you refer to it as a coup attempt as well. But in my understanding, a coup is when someone tries to grab the levers of power. It's when something grabs the control of the executive branch or or the military. And that's something that we've seen in Africa, several states this year. We've seen it several times before in, in history. And this obviously was some kind of very abnormal, to me, an abnormal event and there is a threat to democracy in it, but but it doesn't it, it doesn't look like an ordinary coup at least because the supposed coup leader he was watching it on television and he was actually in control at the time of the uprising of uh, of of the executive branch of of power. How should we understand this very spectacular event uh, on January six? Yeah, so I I agree with you that you know coup may not be the right word. I mean, I think what's very interesting is the fact that Americans really struggle to figure out what to even name it. Was it an insurrection? Was it a putsch? Uh, was this an uprising? Uh, you know, some people have settled on the word coup. I mean, I take the point. I mean, I think a coup is often when the military apparatus is in the hands of the person attacking the. the democratic order. It is possible, I should say, to have a self-coup. That's a quite common phenomenon in Latin America where a president who's in power uh, gains the gains the reins of power and attacks the parliament, attacks the kind of law institution, legal institutions to try to, try to keep himself in power. So that's that's not such an unfamiliar event to, to have a kind of incumbent do this. But I agree with you that this is not a traditional military coup. This was very much a kind of slightly disorganized, ineffective uprising. Uh, it was a serious threat to the democratic order. It was trying to enter. There was a process of trying to interrupt the trans- peaceful transfer of power, which is a basic hallmark of democracy. And I think the evidence from the January sixth committee from the Congress, as well as journalists, is that there were at the highest levels of the presidency, there were political actors who knew that this was going to happen, were encouraging it, and so were not. You know, their hands were not entirely clean. I mean, events like this have happened throughout history. In the book, we describe an event in France in 1934 where there was a similar attack on the French parliament. And just as in that event, which that event also failed, uh, there were political insiders, people in the Congress building in the United States, people in the parliament in France in 1934 who knew the event was going to happen, who uh, encouraged it, applauded it, and after the fact, tried to justify it. So in that sense, you know, it falls somewhere between a kind of insurrection, a disorganized protest, and a coup, and that's why we have all of these words to describe it. But the main takeaway point, I think, for anybody to say is that it was a very serious attempt to uh, disrupt the, the transfer of power, which is a hallmark of democracy. 
Do to go directly to your book, which I, as I said, I, I learned a lot from. I learned a lot from your your former book uh, as well. But this takes an institutional approach in a systematic way that's very very enlightening. Uh, you refer to a quote by by the great Robert E. Dahl, who wrote that the fear of the tyranny of the majority may obscure an equally dangerous phenomenon, the tyranny of the minority. And I, I never heard that before. I read Robert E. Dahl, but I never heard of that before. What is the tyranny of the minority? Well, I mean, if you just stop and think for one moment, in the United States, we're the only presidential democracy in the world where it's possible to lose an election and to, after losing an election, become president. You can lose the popular vote for the presidency and still become president. And this is just indicative of a broader problem in the American political system where uh, very often the losers of popular votes for the Senate as well, the U.S. Senate, uh, have control of the government. So you know, since the year 2000, Democrats have the Democratic senators in the U.S. Senate Senate have represented a majority of voters for all 20, uh, 21 to 22 years of this century. Republicans, nonetheless, have been in control of the Senate for half that time. And so our institutions are set up in a way to um, to restrain majorities. And I think and that's this notion of the, the fear of tyranny in the majority was one of the kind of inspirations of the U.S. Constitution. Um, it is a very serious fear, and it's something we should really be, all be concerned about. I mean, I think there's lots of signs around the world of autocrats who come into power and once in power, use their temporary majorities to try to entrench themselves of, in power by by disabling the opposition, by making it for the op hard for the opposition to, to uh, win elections, for changing the rules in a way that be benefits the incumbent. And so tyranny of the majority is a serious threat in, in all democracies. On the other hand, though, uh, democracy is more is you know requires not just protection protecting the minorities. It also there needs to be at least some room for majority rules when it comes to elections and when it comes to legislatures. And our kind of main critique of the American political system is that it's a very old constitution that was written in the 18th century, and like many old constitutions, contains lots of checks on majorities. And I think in the American context, we have uh, not gone far enough uh, on, on allowing majorities to govern. Again, I just want to really emphasize, you know, for your listeners and readers that, you know, I, I think that in some cases there can be too much majority rule. I think, you know, what was happening in Israel before the October uh, 7th attack, where uh, Netanyahu was trying to uh, increase his own control over the judiciary was an instance of trying to impose majority rule to disable the opposition. Viktor Orban has done the same thing in Hungary. Chavez did the same thing in Venezuela. Um, Erdogan has attempted to do similar things in, in Turkey. In the American context, though, uh, we just happen to not have enough majority rule. And so that's really the warning that we try to give in our book. Yeah, and I think that's what we're seeing in a very interesting way here in Europe is that, you know, many of the new Eastern European countries' constitutions, when they became democracies, they were built on the German constitution as, as a role model. Um, so they had quite strong constitutional courts. And then you have now leaders who are opposed to these constitutional uh, courts. So we have kind of a, a constant battle be between these two instances of, of, of legitimate democratic power here in Europe. When, when I was... Yes, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that one way to think about this is there's many different ways for democracies to die. One is with too much majority rule, um, where you have, like, you know, as you say, trying to go after independent judiciaries, go after civil liberties with using temporary majorities. That's one way. But there's also, and I, one of the points of our book is there's a second way for democracies to die, which is not enough majority rule. And so, you know, what we're trying to argue for is there needs to be a balance between these two basic principles. 
And, and you know, when I was growing up and and uh, going to high school and 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 later in in, in what we call uh, college here, here I was always taught about this American system of checks and balances as the finest democratic mechanisms. They were really uh, applauded uh, here, and we heard about these counter-majoritarian features as something that was a very fine feature of, of the American Constitution. And I thought for a long time that that was actually big assets for for you. These go all the way back to to the founding fathers, and you actually describe the origins of them uh, in in the book in a very in, interesting way. Could you tell us about the historical background of this constitutional design? Yeah, so that's that's yeah, great question because you know it is it is a brilliant a constitutional design. It's you know the U.S. Constitution is the oldest constitution in the world. Um, it was designed in many ways by the founders to uh, deconcentrate power. They were skeptical. The founders are skeptical of the power of kings. They were also skeptical of the power of too, too much power was in the hands of majorities. And so there were some basic kind of Republican principles of dividing the power of government uh, that provided inspiration. That said, I mean, it's important to also recognize that the Constitutional Convention was a moment of, of um, great improvisation um, and creativity. I mean, these were founders who had never I mean, the, the, as the founders in the 18th century were designing the constitution, they, they had no model to go on. And there was lots of internal divisions among the founders themselves. The representatives of big states and small states had really different views. And the representatives of slave states and free states had different views. And so when they got together, as with any kind of founding moment, uh, they had there was, was nece necessary to compromise and to improvise. And in this very hot summer of 1787, where they were really under pressure to come up with a solution quickly, um, you know, lots of different proposals came to the table. I mean, James Madison, the author of many of the Federalist Papers, who people associate with the checks and balances, his initial plan, which was called the Virginia Plan, was actually very, you know, represented a high level of concentration of power. What he wanted was essentially what became parliamentary systems in the United States. He wanted the president to be selected by the Congress. He wanted uh, the Senate, the second chamber, to be give each state be given seats based on the by its proportion of the population. So had he had his way, we would have ended up with a much more centralized polity. But there was great pushback against this. And at the end of the day, a series of compromises were reached where small states and big states had the same level of representation, um, uh, where the president was indirectly elected through the electoral college, and where just the barest outlines of the judicial system were created. I mean, that this idea of judicial review where the court has the federal court, Supreme Court has the ability to veto legislation was something that was really not specified in the constitution and only came later. So many of the things we associate with the checks and balances were kind of improvisations. And so our our kind of one of our points in the book is to say, I mean, to, when we emphasize that it was a result of improvisation and compromise, the point is to kind of say, we shouldn't treat this as if the, these are a set of institutions that were given to us by God and that are not, shouldn't be reformed uh, going forward. In fact, George Washington, a month or so after the founding, wrote his nephew a letter saying that the Constitution is imperfect and it's up to future generations to improve it. And immediately the Bill of Rights was added, uh, which, you know, which we all the freedom of speech, freedom of association and so on were added to it. And over the course of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, at key moments in American history, the Constitution has been amended. And the part of the reason that Constitution looks as effective as it does today is because it's been amended throughout its history. And that's really what we think we need to re-engage that tradition in the United States. 
Yes, because looking at the history as you unfolded in the book, we see actually there have been substantial changes to American democracy and amendments to to the Constitution. It's something that we here in Denmark would consider something that was always there and and that, that for us that we associate with American democracy came later. But on the other hand, looking at democracy in the 20th, in the 20th century, in, in most European countries, they were all about eliminating some of the old counter-majoritarian features. Here in Denmark, we had the second chamber that was abolished, but you saw that everywhere. Why didn't you not see this elimination of some of the counter-majoritarian features in America in the 20th century? Yeah, an interesting question. You know, there have been moments of change where, you know, for instance, our upper chamber at the beginning of the 20th century, the Senate, used to be indirectly uh, appointed by state legislators. Under great social pressure and a big uh, progressive movement in the early 20th century, uh, the Constitution was amended to allow us to directly elect our senators. So that's an instance where we ha have made democratic reforms. Uh, going back in the post-Civil War era, um, you know, voting rights were protected. Um, African-Americans gained the right to vote in principle, at least. Uh, an equal rights amendment was passed in the 14th Amendment. Women gained the right to vote at the beginning of the 20th century. So there have been moments of major institutional change, but you're exactly right. That has sort of stalled out, especially since around 1970. 1970 was a sort of key threshold where there was an effort to eliminate the Electoral College. And I know lots of Scandinavian democracies right in this period were also weakening their upper chambers and carrying out major reforms. I know Sweden got rid of its upper chamber right around this period. So 1970, there was a proposal to amend the Constitution to eliminate the Electoral College. And it was actually very close. Uh, this was a proposal that Richard was not a radical proposal. Richard Nixon was in favor of this. The biggest labor union, AFL-CIO, was in favor of getting rid of it. On the business side, the Chamber of Commerce was in favor of getting rid of it. The Association of Lawyers, the American Bar Association, was in favor of getting rid of it. It received two-thirds of the vote in the uh, House of Representatives um, and had a majority of support in the Senate. But then this proposal died in the Senate. Since that period, it's sort of become part of a sort of general narrative that the Constitution is just impossible to change. So there's... I would say, you know, to really directly answer your question, why has this happened more so in the United States? Two things. One, the U.S. Constitution is the hardest constitution in the world to change. It requires two-thirds of the House of Representatives, two-thirds of the Senate, and then three-quarters of the states. Comparative constitutional scholars have tried to measure how hard it is to change a constitution. The U.S. is the hardest in the world. should be hard to change a constitution, I think, but in this case, it's really probably too hard. So that's one thing. But I think a second part of this is that a kind of narrative has developed in American society that it's just impossible to change the Constitution. You know, this is just out of our hands. And one of our points of our book is to really try to awaken Americans to the possibility that actually reform sometimes may be possible. The barriers are serious. They're high. But there have been moments of success in the past. And so I think if Americans kind of reawaken their imagination, their political imagination, it may be possible at some point, not, not in the next two years, but at some point in the future for pressure to grow, to kind of begin to change some of these institutions that I, at the end of the day often have negative consequences for us. But, but of course, as you also write in the book, there's a kind of interplay here between the political culture, the political parties and the political institutions, because part of the problem would be that, that today one of the parties actually benefits from what the other party would see as a deficit of democracy in the American institution. And it seems that there is a, there's a connection here between some demographic changes in America, some changes within the Republican Party, and then the institutional deadlock, or, or the narrative at least of, of institutional deadlock. Can you tell how, how the Republican Party are, are using uh, these counter-majoritarian 
features to respond to demographic changes? Yes. So the Constitution, as written back in the 18th century, as I said, was this compromise which uh, overrepresented uh, small states. You know, they had this overrepresentation in the Senate, overrepresentation in the uh, Electoral College. And as a result of that, also, kind of their views were overrepresented in the federal court system because the presidents picked the federal judges and the Senates approved them. Now, this is this never really benefited one party over another political party because this overrepresentation of small states, which became over the course of the 19th century, overrepresentation of rural states, low population states. Um, this always, you know, again, because both parties actually had urban and rural wings. Both part there was uh, the parties in urban areas and rural areas for both parties. The beginning of the 21st century, these demographic changes have come to the United States, as in many other Western democracies, where rural areas tend to become have become the party that have become sort of fully dominated by the Republican Party, Conservative Party, and the Democratic Party has essentially become the party of urban areas. And so, as a result of this, what had previously just benefited rural areas in both parties today now benefits the Republican Party. So, the Republican Party, as I mentioned before, you know, has had control of the Senate, uh, although not winning a majority of the vote. The Republican Party has only won the popular vote for the U.S. presidency one time since 1988 in 2004, only one time. And yet the Republicans have controlled the presidency for about half of the 21st century. And this is because this boost uh, that rural areas are given in the political system benefits Republicans. So Republicans don't have to win 50 percent of the vote to win the presidency, whereas the Democrats have to win 53, 54 percent of the vote to have a lock on the presidency. Um, and as a result of this, also, again, the court system disproportionately represents the preferences of the Republican Party. So now there's two things about this. One, what this means is that you kind of have unfair competition. It's always been unfair, but it's really un it's more noticeably unfair when one party benefits from it. Um, a second point, though, is that public policies are increasingly out of sync with what the public actually wants. I mean, if you do, you know, Pew surveys, any survey shows that overwhelming majorities of Americans want gun control. Um, they uh, want, you know, relative liberal rules on abortion. Overwhelming majorities of Americans want more aggressive policies to combat inequality and poverty. Our public policies don't reflect that. And so if you're looking at the U.S. from the outside, you may think, well, God, what's wrong with Americans? Why can't they deal with this gun control problem? The problem in some ways of our diagnosis is that our institutions overrepresent that minority of people who are against these uh, kinds of very common sense sorts of policies. The, the third consequence of this, that's a second consequence. A third big consequence of all of this, as you pointed to, is that since the Republican Party benefits from this, this actually kind of radicalizes the Republican Party. I mean, if you want to understand why the Republican Party has moved farther and further to the right, uh, it's in large part because they're bolstered by these institutions. They're artificially boosted by these institutions where they don't actually have to win majorities of the electorate in order to win power. And so a little bit like a, a company that has kind of um, protectionism protecting it and a firm that you know doesn't actually have to win over customers to stay in business, the Republican Party can win power without winning majorities, which contributes to its radicalization. And all of this makes reform difficult, though, exactly as you note, because the Republican Party will largely resist efforts to dismantle this. And so the, the challenge for reformers is to figure out how to carry out institutional reforms that may at first glance seem to hurt Republican interests, at least in the short run. Um, but I think it is possible, and there are kind of ways ways ahead. And we lay out some of these out in our book. I was thinking when 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 Joe Biden was uh, was elected that that he 
would have the capacity to appeal to voters that that were harder for Bill Clinton or Barack Obama to appeal to because he was not from an elite college. He was not uh, a, a beneficiary of what Michael Sandel calls the tyranny of, 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 of merit, that he would be speaking to people in rural areas, he would be speaking to the working class, that he would be able to bridge some of the divisions in American uh, politics. And some of his policies actually did benefit people in the countryside. And, you know, his cap on, on medicine, for instance, is really helpful to... To, to working people. So so I would just looking at the way he talks, his policies, I would think that he would be someone who could actually uh, make progressive and confer, um, and conservative forces uh, close ranks as you write in the books to temporarily defend democracy. But it seems that he that that polarization has just increased while while Joe Biden was in uh, was in often. What do you think is is the lesson of that? One thing I would say is to not underestimate the achievement. In fact, he did win the popular vote majority mm. in 2020. He did win the presidency in 2020. So he was able to do all of that. Uh, he was also able to accomplish a lot legislatively. And that was because he was even with very narrow margins. But I think we have to remember that he's fighting an uphill battle here because he's fighting against a party that artificially, you know, might be able to win the, you know, could very well win the presidency again in 2024 without winning the popular vote. Now, I do take your point, and I think you are correct that, you know, if you look at opinion polls today, Joe Biden is not particularly popular, that, you know, in recent polls, Trump is ahead of Biden. So we'll see what happens in 2024, um, whether this strategy has paid off. So I think that I think you're right that one of the ways of understanding this. You know, people often will ask me, well, how is it that everybody can still be supporting Trump after all of this? I think that the kind of uh, vulnerability of the system that he has not been able to address is this extremely high level of political party polarization, where voters of each side view each other with fear and deep animosity. And so you have many Republicans who don't like Donald Trump, uh, but dislike Joe Biden even more because he's a Democrat and so are willing to tolerate their own candidate from their party. And so, you know, I would say a roughly, you know, 30% of Americans, maybe up to 35% of Americans are the core of the Trump base. And this number is actually not so different from this sort of roughly 20 to 30% of voters who find far right parties appealing in Western Europe as well. The difference oh. is we have a two party system. And so that 30% is embedded in a political party that has around 50% of the electorate supporting it a little bit less. And so, you know, if uh, if you have somebody who takes control of the party and has enough votes, a plurality of the votes within that party to win the primary, then that person is the head of the party. And then you are facing essentially a 50-50 race. And so, um, you know, I think you're right that it's going to be a close election as a result of that. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I think the bet that Biden has run on is that his economic policies will kind of defuse some of the anger that's fueled the populist rage against the political system. But what's pretty clear is that has, you know, maybe it's paid off, maybe it hasn't, but I guess we'll see in 2024 whether that bet works. I certainly hope so, because I should emphasize that I'm very impressed by the legislative achievements of Joe Biden under very, very difficult circumstances. He's been a transformative president in, in many ways. But and I also take your point that we see the same tendencies in Europe and and the support for the extreme right is not so much larger in America than it is here. Actually, you could make the case that it's probably uh, the same. But one thing that to me is very different between America and at least Western Europe is your public debate, because here you have people like Boris Johnson, 
who are who are lying and, and who has no respect for the truth or or for fact. But eventually, Boris Johnson was held accountable, and not just by his political opponents, but also by public debate. There were people changing their minds about Boris Johnson because they saw what he did during COVID. And what is striking to us about the American public debate, from which we learn a lot, I should emphasize, is that it seems that no matter what is what is being discussed, no one is actually able to change their mind. That there is yeah. not a common public debate where you shape common ways of watching the world and shape common understandings of what are facts and what is true. And that, I think, is different between America and Europe. How do you see that difference? Yeah, no, that's very clear. I remember really being shocked by the swing in public opinion polls between the uh, Tory party and the Labour party. You know, when the British when the gov British government, you know, brought the British financial system to the precipice recently, I mean, there was a major shift in public opinion away from the Tory party. And so there were voters who were movable. And I think what's so striking about the US is exactly as you put it, that people seem to be basically unmovable, that there's these there's kind of these locked in positions. Um, and this is, you know, again, this is what political scientists call polarization. So I think that is that is distinctive. So I guess the question in a way is why, you know, why is that the case? And, you know, I think there's lots of factors playing a, a kind of role in it. I mean, what we have emphasized in our work in our previous book, How Democracies Die, as well as our new book, we emphasize that one of the big factors, which is something similar that's happened in Western Europe, but in a more exaggerated form in the United States, is the way in which the parties realign in particular over race, the role of race uh, and ethnicity in American politics. You know, so until the 1960s, both parties were quite similar. You had the two parties that were had a mix of liberal and conservative wings. I said before, both parties had urban and rural wings. But in 1965, when America fully democratized with the vote, passage of the Voting Rights Act, you had three big changes. Number one, uh, African-Americans and their children in the South started to vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, second, what happened was that the major immigration law passed in that year, and immigrants and their children ended up in the Democratic Party. And third, uh, formerly white Democratic voters in the U.S. South ran to the Republican Party. And the net result of these three big movements was you now have two political parties, one, the Democratic Party, which is highly diverse, a kind of rainbow coalition party of immigrants and their children and, and people who live in cities, and then over and this, and the Republican Party, an overwhelmingly white a uh, pretty re Christian religious party, vo uh, voting base. Now that party has become a little more diverse in the recent years, but when you have an electorate divided along lines of ethnicity and race, this is incredibly polarizing because it means that, you know, this is not about, you know, fighting over tax rates and kind of health insurance policies. It's fighting over things like religion and way of life. And when that's the central cleavage in a society, then you end up in a situation where you're highly polarized like we are today. So I think that's a big part of the kind of demographic realities. But just if I could add one other thing that I think has exacerbated sure. this um, is the role of media. I mean, I think our me American media structures where, where you have very little room and space for public television, public radio, I think, um, and where the media structures are really fully market driven you know, the market share of our public television is tiny compared to most West European democracies. I think this uh, means that the kind of media structures end up reinforcing a lot of these social divisions as as media companies. You know, there's great journalists. I don't mean to kind of criticize journal, journalists. You know, there's great, very professional journalists who are searching for the truth. But, you know, these are they're often working for companies that, uh, you know, are trying to make money, which is, you know, fine in a, in a free market society. 
But if you don't have any room for a kind of public sector media structures, then um, I think this actually reinforces some of these divisions and the kind of parallel uh, political cultures are reinforced. So it would be helpful to the U.S. if you had an institution or institutions that would be equivalent of BBC or something like that. Yes, exactly. Or the German system, you know, where you have these federated structures where in each kind of region of the country you have public media structures. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that would be very useful. Uh, but I, you know, that's something that's really uh, maybe even more difficult to imagine than reforming the electoral college. <laughs> I th- I think when when we see American politics here from Scandinavia, of course, our default position is very close to the Democratic Party and very far from from the Republican Party. So when we tell this narrative of decline in de- American democracy, polarization, we all we always come up with Republican examples of of what we consider to be too much or excesses of in, insanity in the, in the electorate and and so on. It's hard for us to see what the Democratic Party has done wrong, but it must take two parties to polarize. Uh, and so so I think, do you think looking back that the Democratic Party could have done more to establish this common ground and common discourse? That's the foundation for actually having a public discussion. I would like to be able to blame both parties because that would reinforce the <laughs> impression that I'm a neutral person and because I, I think I am neutral and trying to be as objective as possible. But I think the reality is that the bulk of the blame lays, in fact, with the Republican Party, unfortunately. So there is polarization, but it's quite asymmetric. You know, sometimes people will say, well, why doesn't the Democratic Party, you know, and your listeners, as they listen to me, might say, why doesn't the Democratic Party go and win in rural areas? You know, and they ensure, you know, I think they should do that. They should try to appeal to voters from all walks of life in the United States. But we have to remember we have a political system that's tilted in such ways that the Democratic Party, you know, is winning majorities. You know, there's a book that's come out in the United States called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Making the case that Democrats Mm -hmm. have kind of fallen down on the job. And, you know, I read one reviewer who said, you know, sort of a little bit um, ironically in response to where have all the Democratic voters gone? They've gone to the the polling stations and they go and vote. Democrats have won the popular vote for the presidency, as I said before. Every year since 1988, with only one exception. So Democrat, you know, Democrats are doing their job. They are trying to win elections. They're, they've uh, tried to reinforce democratic norms. I mean, there are, of course, extremist factions of every political party. But by and large, in the Congress, for instance, Nancy Pelosi, when she was Speaker of the House, was able to hold her coalition together and get them to go along with Joe Biden's uh, policies. Uh, even though there may have been some disagreement among the uh, within the Democratic Party. And so I've been above all impressed that the Democratic Party has done a pretty good job of trying to defend democracy. Of course, there's certain things to criticize. I mean, I think one, if I, you know, since you asked, I mean, I would say one thing the Democrats are guilty of, I would say, is within blue states. So let's say New York, Massachusetts, where I live, California, where you essentially have overwhelming Democratic majorities. Um, you know, this is this is also a problem. I mean, it's you know maybe it's part of the problem is in these states Republicans have collapsed in these kind of over, overwhelmingly liberal states, but when they block efforts to let's say introduce uh, impartial um, redistricting, so this is a big kind of area of conflict in the U.S. is you know this idea of gerrymandering where con- congressmen and politicians draw their own districts. Uh, both parties engage in this. I think it would be much better, and some states already are doing this. California, among others. Where uh, where there's an impartial commission that draws these districts. In some instances, Democrats have, in the state of New York, have pushed against this and have drawn really unfair districts to reinforce the Democratic Party. At some level, that's undemocratic. And so I think 
that's one area where where Democrats have kind of just acted as incumbents trying to protect their interests rather than defending democracy. Um, but I think, you know, broadly speaking, unfortunately, the bulk of the blame has to fall on the Republican Party. And we're in a situation where essentially you have the feeling that if one each with each national election feels like a potential national emergency and people say, well, why can't Democrats figure out how to win? I mean, we should live in a, a democracy is a system in which parties alternate in power. And, the, and, and just because one party loses, democracy shouldn't be brought to the brink. Uh, and I think we're in a situation where it has that feeling that if if the Democratic Party does not win in 2024, uh, you know, American democracy will be really put at risk. And, you know, I think the, that blame has to lay, uh, unfortunately, uh, with the Republican Party. And I should say, you know, our goal in our book is really to make the case for, uh, you know, we want two parties to be able to win majorities. The kind of sign of Democratic health would be if the Republican Party could win national majorities, win power. Uh, because that would be mean that the party has uh, is, is a democratic political party, a small d democratic political party, and so we want two viable parties, and that's the only way that American democracy will ever be viable. I, I just have one last question, uh, and that's a big question, but I just want to hear your reflections on it, because um, when I look at American democracy in the 20th century, especially in the year after the Second World War, but also before that. It was clear there was a, a compromise between American capitalism and American democracy that was very helpful for American democracy. That the way that wealth and income was distributed helped you build a middle class that is the bedrock of liberal democracy. And you had what Robert Wright calls the grand bargain that, that was also building democracy in the workplace. And over the last decade, it seems that American capitalism is working more against American democracies. We spoke about media before, and it's obvious that Facebook and, and Google are, are damaging the, the old infrastructure of, of, of the public debate. It's obvious that we've seen uh, inequality rise in wealth, assets, and, and income that also seems to challenge the, the material foundations of, of democracy. Do you see this uh, tension between American capitalism and American democracy different in the 21st century than in the 20th? Yeah, and I think you identify some really important dynamics that are destabilizing. I mean, with high levels of ec economic inequality, I mean, economic inequality has increased everywhere, but even more so in the United States. Um, this means that the you know political system, which is premised on political equality, which is what democracy is, uh, comes under great pressure because there's you know there's a lot of billionaires in the United States who have more voice than the average voter. So that's certainly a problem. I would also though point. Uh, out and, and so I agree with Robert Reich and others in this respect. But I would also point to you know the causal arrow also points in the other direction. Uh, our political institutions are hmm. making this problem worse uh, because our political institutions, by not allowing majorities of Americans to have their views expressed, makes itself vulnerable to capture by small narrow interests. And again, as I said before, majorities of Americans want. And according to all sorts of opinion polls, want higher minimum wage, want to address economic inequality. But the problem is majorities don't speak in America. And so our political institutions, our, our flawed democracy are reinforcing some of these economic problems. And this is a kind of vicious circle in which then those same economic structures then uh, reinforce troubles in American democracy. Now, I mean, I don't want to end entirely on a negative note because <laughs> I think are these moments in American history where you know broad social movements emerge. I mean, the early 20th century was not so dissimilar from the 21st century in that you had extraordinary high levels of economic inequality in the Gilded Age. You know, the robber barons were dominated the political scene. If one goes 
down to Newport, Rhode Island, which is, you know, an hour from where I'm sitting in these giant mansions where, you know, the captains of industry had these homes, you know, you know, you know, 10,000 square foot homes with, you know, servants and slaves, well, basically, not slaves, but servants working for them. I mean, this was an era in which uh, uh, capitalism was running wild. We reformed our democracy in the early 20th century. And I think in many ways that preceded the New Deal era um, and kind of major economic reform. So if we want to address capitalism in America, I think we need to make our system more democratic. And I think these two things go hand in hand. Well, thank you so much. What a privilege to get the opportunity to talk to you. It was very helpful and very teaching. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for the great questions. Bye bye. Bye. Det her var så min samtale med Daniel Sieblad, der også fungerer som en slags optakt til de republikanske primærvalg, som går i gang her i januar. Det første er en caucus i Iowa den 15. januar. Samtalen var produceret og redigeret af vores vidunderlige venner hjælper Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med den kinesiske amerikanske forsker Min Seng Pei, som allerede har skrevet flere hovedværker om udviklingen i kinesisk økonomi, udviklingen i de kinesiske autokrati, og som nu til februar udgiver det, der ser ud til at blive et hovedværk om den kinesiske overvågningsstat. The Sentinel State hedder den. Surveillance and the Survival of Dictatorship in China. Bogen udkommer først den 13. februar, men vi har fået lov til at læse den inden. Og hvis du gerne vil lytte med på hans analyser af den kinesiske overvågningsstat, så lyt endelig med i næste uge. Herfra skal vi bare sige god jul, og tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.